Dave, could you please say a few words about yourself? Sure. My, my name is Dave Kellogg, I'm currently an independent consultant and independent board director, sitting on the board of three SaaS companies. Previously, I was CEO of Host Analytics and CEO of MarkLogic. Prior to that, I was a uh, SVP at Salesforce, in charge of customer service applications. Prior to that, CMO at Business Objects. Tell me about Kellblog. Sure, yeah. I've been blogging for over 10 years. I started out at MarkLogic doing the blogging because our customers were dealing with uh, the disruption of social media, and I wanted to experience it myself. So it was actually the, the impetus for Kellblog. Um, and then over time, it gravitated to subjects I was interested in. And uh, in fact, the number one reason I write a post is it something I'm interested in, and I, and I want to make sure I really understand it. And the best way to really understand something is to write about it. And as we'll talk about later, this is how I got so into SaaS metrics, because people are very quick to talk about them over a coffee without doing the math behind them. And when you start writing posts on what is churn and defining how to calculate it, you start getting that next level of detail that is very important. So what are the primary SaaS metrics? The primary SaaS metric to me, there's one. It's ARR, Annual Recurring Revenue. Some people used to say ACV, annual contract value. The problem is the C for contract can include things like services or one-time setup fees and services. So I think most people have moved away from ACV to ARR. ARR has a cousin called MRR, which depending on what kind of business you're in, you may want to look at monthly recurring revenue. I think MRR is really more for kind of maybe small business or consumer plays. Uh, if you're focused on enterprise SaaS like I am, I think annual recurring revenue is really the, the primary SaaS metric. It's the first thing you should think about. How do you calculate it? Sure. I mean, ARR is basically trying to get the value of your subscription base. And the easiest way is it's quite simple. If I sign you up for $100 a year for a subscription, you're worth 100 units of ARR. If I sign up five more people, the same thing. They're 500 units, so a total of 600 units. You know, It's pretty easy to calculate. There are corner cases, half-year contracts. Right, So I sign you up for a six-month contract for 50 units. That starts to get a little tricky because it's technically 100 units of ARR, but it's not really a 100-unit contract. If you're doing a lot of those, that's actually a case for calculating MRR in my mind. But if your contracts are actually annual, which for most enterprise SaaS companies they are, um, and sometimes they're more than annual, they're, they're two or three years, then I think ARR is, is a perfectly fine and valid metric. If we exclude services from ACV, how close do we get to ARR? ACV, at least the companies I've worked at, ACV was ARR plus services. So I think to me, ACV minus services equals ARR. Although I think some people miss that distinction and they actually treat ACV and ARR as synonyms. I think ARR itself is more naturally descriptive, right? Annual recurring revenue. So, so the services is not recurring, right? So it's definitionally excluded. But when somebody says ACV, the first thing I do is ask, okay, well, how do you define ACV? ARR is more kind of self-defining. Some people look at ARR as annualized recurring revenue and calculate it by multiplying monthly recurring revenue by 12. What's your take on that? I don't, I don't like it because to me, the A, it's actually an interesting point. The, the A isn't annualized. It's supposed to be annual. <laughs> um, and if you're having to annualize shorter duration contracts, to me, it's overstating things. I mean, just say you, you agree to give me you know, 10 units a month on a 
month-to-month basis so you can cancel at any time. I mean, that is 10 units of MRR. I have more trouble calling it 120 units of ARR. I think it's misrepresenting because there really is no annual nature of our agreement. It's a month-to-month agreement. Now, look, if you've got 10,000 customers and five years of history and everyone's renewing all the time, okay, maybe we you know, put it into ARR terms. But I think if you want to be kind of a an honest person, and certainly that's who investors want to invest in. Uh, if your cadence of the business is monthly, you could talk about MRR. If your cadence is annual, you should talk about ARR. But don't have a monthly cadence and then just go multiply everything by 12. What's your take on TCV? So in, in my world, there's ARR and TCV. So, so ARR is the annual recurring revenue. TCV is the total contract value. Now, look, some people will include services in that. I don't think that's really the point of the T. The the, the T isn't about services versus not services. The T is about if I sign you to a three-year commitment on 100 units per year, I would call that 100 units of ARR, and I would call that 300 units of TCV, or 300 units, a a less popular term, of, of subscription bookings right? That's really what it is. It's 300 units of subscription bookings. I would call that TCV. Some folks, if there was 50K in services there, so say it's three uh, years at 100 units per year, plus 50 units of services to get you started, they would call that TCV of 350. So as usual in SaaS, you need to say, okay, what do you mean by TCV? Are you including services or not? In my world, you shouldn't. Because again, my world is about SaaS companies and enterprise and investors, and you want investors to trust you. And if you're shoving services that aren't recurring into a number that is kind of definitionally recurring, it's not going to make you look good. So I'm a bit of a purist here. TCV to me is effectively the total contract value. So a three-year, 100-unit contract is worth 300 units. What's your take on long-term contracts? Let's say three or five years versus one year. I think they're a good thing. The fact of the matter is you need to view churn as probabilistic, right? And I always think of churn a little bit like rolling the dice. So let's just say, instead of going one through 12 of the dice, it's just a percentage from you know zero to 100. So, so when I roll... A, uh, a even better way to do it is actually I, I just roll the dice and it's one or zero, renew or not. <laughs> and, and, and if you know, nine of my customers roll a one and they all renew and one rolls a zero and then they don't renew, right, then I lose that customer's ARR. And the fact of the matter is when you do multi-year contracts, there are fewer rolls. So, so if we do a one-year contract, uh, you get to roll the dice every year. You're going to be rolling the dice to say, am I going to renew? Am I going to renew? If we do a three-year contract, you roll the dice once every three years. And obviously, the more frequently you roll the dice, uh, in general, the higher odds are you're going to churn. So I think longer-term deals are good because they effectively reduce the opportunities for customers to not renew. The other nice thing about long-term deals As we'll see, increasingly, there's a new metric coming up, kind of an up-and-coming metric called RPO, Remaining Performance Obligation, um, and they will be reflected in RPO. Right now, they're virtually impossible to see like because they're they're not deferred revenue unless they're prepaid, and some companies do prepaid multi-year deals, and we can talk about the pro-con there. But if these are non-prepaid, i.e. first-year only prepaid, so a three-year deal where you pay one year at a time in advance – Right, so a three-year non-prepaid deal, that would be 100 units of ARR in my book. It would be 300 units of TCV. And in an RPO world, it would show up as 200 units of RPO. You'd see it as remaining performance obligation. That, that's not short-term. So overall, I think they're a good thing. What metrics besides ARR do you think are important to track? So you're right. We've talked about ARR, which is by far the most important SaaS metric. And by the way, if and when you sell your company – 
it will be valued based on ARR. I mean, you may have a services business there, but people will tend to look through that services business as if it does not exist, unless it's either super profitable or super unprofitable, <laughs> in which case people may adjust for it. Um, but if it's running around break-even, its size is irrelevant to your valuation. People will just look at ARR and, and value your business as a multiple of ARR and, and how fast it's growing. So if, if you have to pick two metrics, uh, one is ARR and the other one's ARR growth. And with those two metrics alone, you can actually pretty much figure out what a SaaS company is worth. When you move on from them, I think lesser importance, but we, we talked earlier about bookings uh, and this reflected, okay, the distribution of your deal. So I know how big your subscription base is, but how long are the contracts you're doing? If you're doing all one-year contracts, there's probably a little more risk than if you're doing all five-year contracts, right? So, so how stable is that renewing base? The next really important metric to me is relates to customer acquisition cost. Okay, so you have this much ARR in your, I always think of a SaaS company like a leaky bucket. So it's a leaky bucket full of what? It's full of ARR. And every quarter sales dumps more ARR in. And every quarter, the customer success team is trying to put their fingers on the holes in the bucket, right, to keep water from leaking out. And when you think of a SaaS company this way, we get the first two metrics, which is what's the ARR level in the bucket? How fast is that going up? And that will help you value the company. And then the very next question is, how much does it cost to pour a dollar in? And this ratio, there's a couple of derivatives of it, but they all kind of start with customer. So it's customer acquisition cost or customer acquisition cost ratio. And customer acquisition costs is if you spent a million dollars on sales and marketing and that got you 10 customers, then you'd say we have a $100,000 customer acquisition cost. Personally, I prefer doing everything in ratios. Uh, we can talk about why in a minute, but I tend to look at, wait a minute, how much ARR did you get? So I don't know how many customers you got. I want to know how much ARR you got. So if you spent a million dollars in marketing to get uh, half a million dollars in ARR, then your customer acquisition position cost ratio would be 2.0, which, by the way, is a fairly high one. <laughs> and again, with, with this is the difference between CAC ratio and, and just CAC, the customer acquisition cost. I don't know if 100,000 is a big number or a little number, right? Because I don't know how much ARR they're giving you. But as soon as I can do things in a ratio tied to ARR, I can say that spending $2 on sales and marketing to get a dollar's worth of ARR, it's, it's a fair amount of money. One of the best companies I've ever seen has 0.4, which is really, really really good. <laughs> I, I would say one is excellent. I would say 1 to 1.5 is getting on the high side for a CAC ratio. 1.5 to 2 is going to start to make investors scratch their head. And as a friend of mine who's a VC once said, uh, I don't even like to meet with companies that have a CAC above 2, which is a slight exaggeration. But people are going to have a lot of questions if you're spending more than $2 for a dollar of ARR. And the reason for that is people look at another ratio related to CAC called CAC payback period. And the CAC payback period is, you know, when I went to business school, they taught, and it's very important, that payback metrics are risk metrics. How long is your money on the table? You know, IRR is a return metric. Uh, ROI is a return metric. How much am I getting back for what I put in? Payback metrics are risk metrics in the term of how long is the money at risk? So... The most common CAC payback metric is called the CAC payback period, and that is how much you spend on sales and marketing on the one hand, and how many years of subscription gross margin does it cost to get that back? So let's just stick with our example. We spent 200 units to get 100 units of ARR, so our CAC was two. Let's say our subscription gross margin 
was a 75%. It's actually not going to be easy, but I'll say it's 75%. And then the question is, how long does it take me to get back my $2 at 75 cents a year? So it's going to take me one year for the first 75 cents. Two years, I'll have a dollar fifty, And I'm thinking somewhere like a 2.6, I guess somewhere in the middle of year three, I get paid back. That's a CAC payback period. And, and that's where I was saying earlier that you know 12 months is an excellent CAC payback period. 18 months is getting on the long side. 24 is getting longer. In many ways, you can think of the CAC payback period as just kind of CAC adjusted by how long it takes to recoup it on a gross margin basis. So in general, your CAC payback period in months will always be higher than your CAC ratio times 12, unless your subscription gross margins are 100%. Right? And one of the things that's interesting is VCs tend to like what I call compound metrics that take two different things and blur them together. So they can kind of see kind of all at once how long does it take to get your CAC payback back. Operators like me tend to dislike compound metrics because we want to go fix the problem. And if you tell me your CAC payback period is too high, I don't know if that's because your CAC is too high or your subscription margin is too low. So I think you'll find uh, different folks like to look at these things different. Another one would be, for example, net expansion or net churn. VCs like to look at that. I always like to look at gross and upsell because, again, which problem do I have? Am, am I not selling enough to my base or am I leaking too much out of my base? And if you give it to me netted out, I can't tell what it is. So we'll talk about that too. When calculating customer acquisition cost, how do you look at the customer success versus sales and marketing? Yeah, all these metrics, they seem real simple, right? CAC ratio, well, that's just sales and marketing cost divided by uh, new ARR, right? And, and then the question is, well, wait a minute, what's in sales and marketing? And the answer is, well, sales and marketing, okay, that's pretty easy. But, but what about customer success? Look, this one's tricky because let's just say you have a model where all your customer success team is, does is renewals. They never do upsell. They simply call and check and how are you doing? Are you happy? Are you planning renew? That's all they ever do. And then when renewal comes, they take it. And to make reductio ad absurdum, they don't even ask for price increase, right? <laughs> they, they just renew the contract as is. It's hard to argue that any of that should go into the CAC ratio, right? Because they're not acquiring new ARR. Now, on the flip side, let's just say that, take the other end point, your customer success team does all customer-based sales. So sales is really only new customers, and your customer success team does all upsell, i.e. all new sales to the existing customer base. Well, it's very hard to argue that they're not in sales and marketing, right? In that case, they have to be because at most SaaS companies, that might be 30% of your revenue might be coming from, or 30% of your new ARR might be coming from existing customers, uh, depending on your size and scale. So I think that question is one that you need to kind of stop and say, wait a minute, there's no formula, but what do our customer success people do? Because the intent of the ratio is to measure how much it costs to put a dollar of new ARR in the bucket. If they're helping to put new ARR in the bucket, then they should probably be included in the cost. If they're not, then they shouldn't. Uh, you briefly mentioned churn earlier. Could you please define it for us and explain the significance of the metric? Sure. Yeah, let's speak about churn a little bit. So we're going to say two things about churn. First, we'll do the basics. And, and second, then we're going to talk about net dollar expansion rate, which I think is increasingly replacing churn as a core SaaS metric. But first, let's talk about the basics. Churn. Churn is how much leaks out of your bucket. And the issue with churn is it's a fraction, right? So you have a numerator and a denominator. The numerator is, in theory, the leakage. And the denominator is, in theory, the bucket level. So, so it all sounds really simple, but it gets complicated fast. Why? Because in the numerator, well, are we counting gross leakage or net leakage? 
right? So 20 units leaked out of my bucket, but I upsold 10. So do I have 20 units of churn or 10 units of churn, right? People would call the 20 a gross churn. People would call the 10 a net churn. So when you're talking about churn, are we talking about gross or net, i.e. what's going in the numerator? The leakage in total or the leakage before upsell? And by the way, if you have more upsell than leakage, then you have quote unquote negative churn, right? So if I have 10 units of leakage and 20 units of upsell, I'm going to have negative 10 units of churn. The denominator, unfortunately, is also complicated in churn because if you look at it at the first order, you'd say, well, how, how high is the level of the bucket? You might say, well, I've got $10 million of ARR in my bucket. But as soon as you have a company that's doing multi-year deals, because if the company only does one-year deals, then all $10 million definitionally is up for renewal every year. So I can just say, okay, in a year, you leaked out a million, you had 10 million in your bucket, all of it was up for renewal, so your churn rate was 10%. The issue is, in a world of multi-year deals, maybe only half of it is up for renewal. Maybe five is up for renewal this year, and uh, five is up for renewal next year because we're doing two-year deals. And in that world, you then really, if you want to do what I call ATR churn, which is measuring churn against the available-to-renew base which to me is the more interesting statistic, right? If I want to know how long your contract durations are, I can ask you about that, right? And if you do lots and lots of long deals, uh, that's great. I'll know that. But when I ask churn, typically I think the honest person answers on an ATR basis. If, if we had this many people up for renewable, available to renew, how many did we renew? So in the prior example where we had a million dollars in churn with the $10 million of ARR, we'll calculate it on an ARR basis, that would be 10% churn. And if it was all annual contracts, it would be 10% churn. But say we're doing 50-50 and the ATR base was actually only 5 million. Well, then it's 20% churn. So churn itself is inherently confusing, right? Because you just go, oh gosh, it's just a fraction, leakage divided by base. And then, well, how do you calculate leakage? And then, oh, well, how do you calculate the base? And all of a sudden you end up with four different churn rates and it makes things complicated. So that is why increasingly you're seeing public SaaS companies talk about net dollar expansion rate. And what they're doing is they're just grabbing a cohort and saying, of all the customers who were customers one year ago, if they were worth 100 units of ARR a year ago, what are they worth now? And it might be 120 exceptional ones or 140 or 150. An okay one is 105 to 110. That's really kind of unexciting. So I think you're going to start to see more and more companies move the net dollar expansion rate because it's just one number, right? And, and with churn, we created four numbers in a very short period of time, and they're all interesting numbers. But I think it's a little bit harder to game net dollar expansion rate. There's only one way to game net dollar expansion rate, which is to calculate it in a survivor biased way, which is to calculate backwards to say, oh, let's look at all the people who are customers right now. Let's look at those people and what their ARR was a year ago. And there are a handful of companies that do that. And any sophisticated, like I talked to my sophisticated friends, the first thing we do in the S1 is look at, okay, are they survivor biasing the net dollar expansion rate or not? And an honest company will run it forward. We'll say of all customers who were customers a year ago, if there were 100 units then, what's the total number of units now? That's the correct way to do the expansion rate. The survivor biased way is to run it backwards and say of the people who are customers now, let's go back in time, right? It's a little bit familiar with survivor bias, it's a, it's a trick that mutual funds used to do a long time ago, right? They'd start 10 funds and they'd kill off all the ones that didn't perform and then talk about the great performances. It's the same idea. Excluding the customers who stopped doing business with us, right? Our expansion rate is great, which is, whoa, it's a pretty big thing to exclude. Jordan is also used in calculating customer lifetime value. Could you please speak about it? And this is one of the problems with churn, in fact. So LTV was and has been a very popular SaaS metric, lifetime value. 
The idea is simple enough on the face of it, right? Which is, gosh, if I have a 10% churn rate and you're a 100-unit customer, then your lifetime value is going to be a million because you should last for a 10-year lifetime. There's a couple of problems with it. I mean, one is just a mathematical problem. The small There's two math problems, actually. The smaller the number gets, the bigger the lifetime value gets, and the more of that lifetime value is in the very distant future. So it's at more risk, right? So if I have a 1% churn, now your lifetime is 100 years. And really, I mean, am I really going to get that year 97 payment or how about even the year 67 payment? But the math doesn't know that, right? The math has just assigned that very large lifetime value. And a lot of it is in the very distant future. That's one problem. The other problem is with negative churn, then the calculation becomes mathematically meaningless because you have infinite customer value. So what some people used to do is uh, like what most bankers would do would just cap it. They'd say, we'll use the actual number down to a 5 or 10% churn rate, somewhere between those two. So we'll have an artificially capped somewhere, you know, 10 or 20 year customer lifetime. And then we'll go do the LTV and then say, well, if you're 100 units at 10 years, then you're a million dollars of lifetime value. But I just think that whole notion of having to kind of quietly introduce a cap revealed an underlying weakness with the metric. So again, this is why I think net dollar expansion rate is not only replacing churn metrics, I think, but it's also replacing LTV. Now, the, the other thing that people do do, which is important, and I actually like this metric. I, I wish LTV worked better, but the notion of LTV to CAC is, is a metric I really like personally because ultimately what you pay for something it should be a function of what it's worth. Like if I told you I had a CAC of two, but a lifetime of 20 years, well, gosh, I'd pay $2 to get a dollar a year for 20 years. If I was really sure I was going to get it, I'd do that all day long, right? So, so is two really that high a CAC? And then when you look at it from a payback period, wait a minute, you're getting paid back in gross margin, not in revenue. So, it's, so, so the two is really three years to get paid back. So if you're trying to build a SaaS company, it's going to take a lot of capital because right? you're going to keep buying customers and keep taking three years to get your money back from having bought one. So, so this is why VC think two or three is a large number. But back to the main point, the LTV to CAC ratio was supposed to be the lifetime value divided by the cost. So, so basically, if you were a million dollars in lifetime value, so you're a 100-unit customer, right? I have a 10% churn rate, so you're a million dollars of lifetime value. I had a CAC of two. Let's stick with that example. Your LTV to CAC would be a million divided by 200, which would be five. So we would have a lifetime value of five times what we paid for you. I like that metric because it's kind of got both sides of the scale. What's it worth versus what I paid? Uh, I like the CAC ratio. I think it's very solid and a very good metric. But as we've talked about, lifetime value, unfortunately, is a bit of a squishy metric. And this is why I think that lifetime value and some of the churn metrics are going to get effectively replaced by net dollar expansion rate. I've seen some companies track a net performance score. How critical is that metrics in your book? The NPS is a very popular SaaS metric. I think companies should track NPS. I think the best practice way of tracking NPS is to survey one quarter of your base each quarter. So you're surveying each customer once a year, but you're getting data four times a year because you're, you're cutting the base in four. So you kind of have NPS cohorts, if you will. The thing you'll find about NPS, what's good about it? I mean, first, other people measure it so you can get benchmarks. Right, Because a lot of these things, we can create a great new metric and calculate it, but if nobody's surveying people and publishing data on it, I don't know if it's good or bad, right? Almost every metric we've talked about today, you know, I can tell you like LTV to CAC, three is a minimum, five is good, CAC ratio, one is, you know, very good, below one is great, above two raises eyebrows, subscription gross margin, 80% is best practice, 75% is getting low, 50% is way too low, 90% is super high, right? For all these metrics, we know numbers. The issue with a new metric is you don't have numbers, you don't have benchmarks, you don't have 
data. So it's great, you know, but I don't know if the number's good or bad. So one of the best, best, best things about NPS is we have lots of data about what's a good one and what's a bad one. So that's a good thing about NPS. The other good thing about NPS is it's an outward in metric, and I like those. I think many times SaaS companies spend so much time. I mean, look, I love slicing and dicing all the pipeline data as much as anybody, but when we're slicing our pipeline and customer data, we're only seeing that segment of the market who we're selling to. And there might be whole, you know, so we're completely blind to people outside our sample, if you will. Those are the good things about NPS. The other good thing is it keeps your eye on the customer ball because that survey typically has more than just one question. You're going to ask other questions and get a lot of data out of that. Bad thing about NPS is it's not as correlated to renewal as one hopes. One would, at the first order, you'd go, gosh, high NPS customers always renew and low NPS customers don't. And in some ways, you'd wish life were that simple. It's not. You know, for example, unhappy customers renew because of switching costs. Like if you're unhappy with Salesforce, for many years at least, tough, right? What are you realistically going to move to, right? You don't have that many alternatives. Happy customers don't renew because they just got acquired or they just got a new CFO and he wants to bring in a different planning package. So what you'll find is this, what I call this loose correlation between NPS and renewal. So when I do these surveys, I actually measure both NPS and we also explicitly ask intent to renew is <laughs> a different question. So, so uh, you know, how would you, rec- or would you recommend a scale of one through 10, right? The NPS question. Then right after that, we say, do you intend to renew your software? Yes or no? Because the two are not tightly coupled. And if you ask both questions, I think it's great because then look, you want to follow up on the low NPS customers as well, but you want to follow up even faster on the people who say they don't intend to renew. The other thing about NPS that I think people miss, it's a little bit tricky because it's kind of a composite metric in the sense that if you mail a customer survey to 30 end users at your customer, uh, I'll take an example of financial planning software, which I once sold, and you could sample the end users, the people who own the budgets, the, the regular managers inside the company, and say there's 30 people who own budgets inside the company, you could survey the head of financial planning, and you could survey the CFO. And the fact of the matter is, if you calculate an NPS score, you may do an end user score versus a buyer score, right? There's ways to cut that data. You have to be very careful about the weighting of the data, by the way, because you don't want to weight the end users 15 times more heavily than the finance people, right? Because you have only two of these and 30 of those. So there's a weighting question. But the most important question to me is who's writing the check? Who's going to actually do the renewal? Because if all the users are only moderately happy, well, end users don't always like being forced to use systems, right? There's a lot of things that may not affect your renewal at all. So NPS is a little bit, as all these things are, a little bit more than meets the eye, which is who's NPS? How many people did you survey inside the company? How many different roles do they have? And what is the influence of those roles, direct or indirect, on the renewal decision? What's a good NPS score, like a rule of thumb? Yeah, what's a rule of thumb NPS score? And the reason this one's particularly hard is I actually think it's very closely guarded first. And I think it varies on those roles. Like, End users in general are less happy than the people who buy the software for them, right? (laughs) So uh, I would say a good buyer NPS, which is the one that matters. Anything north of 30, I think, is good. I think north of 50 is great. I think those are good NPS scores. I mean, remember, NPS is because the metric can go negative, right? It, it does, it's not zero to 100. It's negative 100 to positive 100. If every single one of your customers hates you, you'd have a negative 100 NPS score. So, so there is a guy called Bruce Temkin who publishes some survey data on this, and I think he's consistent with what I said, T-E-M-K-I-N, and he'll give you like Oracle's aggregate NPS. Right. He won't tell you by product line or anything else, but just on the blog, he'll talk about that. And I think they run in those numbers. 
I've heard of an 80, by the way. 80 is the highest I've ever heard. So 8 out of 10 of your customers are raving fans, basically. I also saw companies truck in billings. What's your take on that? So billings is another metric you hear about SaaS companies. Typically, it's public company SaaS metric. Why? Because in a private company, I can just ask the question I care about, which is how much new ARR did you sign up last quarter? Right. That's actually the question people care about. Billings is a way to try and guess that using public company metrics. The billings is basically calculated, and some financial analysts call this calculated billings, to be explicit that they're calculating it. It's revenue in a quarter plus change in deferred revenue in a quarter. Uh, and I did a blog post all about billings. And look, ceteris paribus for any company, all things being equal, billings works. But for example, if a customer changes billing duration, say they used to do one-year deals and there's a downturn and all their customers want to do six-month payments instead of one-year payments, billings will look horrific. Uh, and when in fact, ARR will be fine because all those people have said, hey, I want to keep renewing. I just want to pay six-month intervals. But deferred revenue will drop radically, right? Because they're only prepaying six months, not 12. This actually happened to me when I was at Salesforce. We, we had a quarter where there was a downturn and they did a bunch of six-month deals. And therefore, deferred revenue wasn't what people thought. Financial analysts thought that meant there wasn't new sales. And it wasn't. It was just a change in payment terms. So this is why, why billings is not a great metric because you know all other things being equal, it works. <laughs> as soon as something's not equal, billings can get thrown off. Off and you don't know if it's a calculation problem or if there's actually something unhealthy with the business. No private company investor asks about billings because they don't have to because they can just ask about what was new ARR. So it's an interesting metric, but not one I encourage. Once in a while, I do meet a private company that uses billings, and I, and I kind of scratch my head and say, why are you doing that? <laughs> because uh, it's, no one really cares about billings. They try to use billings to approximate what they do care about, which is new ARR. Do investors and operators look at the same metrics? Do investors and operators look at the same metrics? I think it's a great question. If there's one big difference I see, it's that investors like compound metrics, operators like, I'm going to call them individual or granular metrics. And I'll, I'll give you some examples and maybe some new ones. But one example is just CAC payback period. We'll start with that one, which is CAC payback period rolls together two different things. It rolls together your CAC ratio, how much it costs to acquire a customer with your subscription gross margin, which is really a measure of how efficiently you run your SaaS service. Now, why would you want to combine those two metrics to get a sense for how long it takes to get the money back that you spent on acquiring customers? So it's a reasonable metric. That the problem with compound metrics in my mind is if you're an operator, you don't know what to fix. So if you tell me you have a bad CAC payback period, I don't know if it's because you run your SaaS service inefficiently and we need to worry about subscription gross margins, or I don't know if it's because you pay too much for a dollar of ARR. Well, LTV to CAC is another compound metric. If your LTV to CAC is low, I don't know if that's because your CAC is high, right? Are you spending too much to acquire a customer or your lifetime value is too low, i.e. you're churning too much out of your ARR bucket? So while they're nifty metrics for investors because they're cool because they roll together multiple things, there's one I think that rolls together three. I can't remember right now. We'll see if we run into it. But investors like them because they're kind of compact and dense. To a certain extent, if you have a bad one, they just don't want to invest. So their decision's made, right? Like don't invest. But your decision has to be what do I do about it, right? Because you're an operator uh, and you want to see the metric kind of torn apart. So I prefer the more individual or granular or kind of one-dimensional metrics to the compound metrics. 
Other than that difference, I think investors and operators care about the same thing. Put it like this, operators should care about what investors care about, and investors care about ARR. Here, let me give you an example of one that maybe there's a divergence of opinion on, which would be services gross margin. One of these age-old questions of the SaaS company is, should you have a services business and should it be profitable? You know, like if you and I started a services business, we could probably generate 35 to 40% gross margins pretty easily. And in fact, in perpetual licensed software companies back in the day, those are the kind of margins you drove. Once in a while, I meet a SaaS company that drives 40% subscription gross margins, but it's like, why are you doing that? Because if in year one, you know, a customer has 150 units and you're asking for 100 units of subscription and 50 units of services, the company would actually be better off if you could play a little sleight of hand and turn that into 120 units of subscription and 30 units of services that would wipe out your 40% gross margin on the services. But now we'd have 120 units of ARR instead, i.e. R renewing every year as opposed to 100. Right, the company would be 20% more valuable if we played that trick over and over again. So most SaaS companies, I'm not sure if they're even consciously aware of that's what they're doing, but they're trying to take the year one money and divide it in a way that as much as possible of it recurs. And one downside of that, I mean, the reductio ad absurdum, by the way, is all of it recurs and you say services are free. <laughs> so you just say, hey, I'm going to have 150 units per year and free setup, um, in which case your services business is going to run at negative 100%. You know, gross margins, but you will have made the company 50% more valuable by moving everything to ARR. And, and that's a big question. Investors and operators can debate it all day long. Personally, my opinion on it is the role of services in a SaaS company, we should always start with the mission. And the mission is to make happy customers and not lose money. Even better yet, to maximize ARR and not lose money. And if you do that mission statement, I think you end up in the right place that investors like. So you're roughly breaking even on your services business. It's not costing you anything. And it is actually helping to maximize ARR, which maximizes value of the company. So I think that's one metric operators, investors may look at differently. I mean, I guess the other one would be cash burn. VCs are in the business of selling money. So they will tend to like high cash consumptive companies, right? Because it lets them invest, right? If you're breaking even on day one, you don't need to raise a $100 million round, right? I can't put $100 million of capital to work. I mean, investors are very much thinking, you know, when they invest $10 million in the company, they're not thinking that's the only $10 million they put in, right? They've earmarked another 30 or 40, right? To say, hey, I'm going to be able to put 40 or $50 million of capital to work on this opportunity. I'm going to do it over multiple rounds. Maybe not that much. If they're putting 10, maybe they've earmarked 20, just to, to be more realistic. I mean, look, if, if you've got a, a $800 million fund, you're not going to be able to invest it all $3 million at a time. You're going to have 200 investments sitting on 200 boards. You know, it's just not going to work. You're, you're going to want to have a check size, is, is the buzz word of you know 20 million or 50 million so you can do 16 investments right across the 800 million dollars and you and your partners can then sit on 16 boards right so i think it's another one i think people look differently at cash flow what's your take on rule of 40 so rule of 40 is it's another one of these compound metrics an attempt to balance growth versus profitability and the rule of 40 is traditionally calculated as growth minus profitability equals 40. That's it. So your growth percentage, so say you're growing 100% and your profitability is negative 60. So therefore you have a rule of 40 score of 40. And so I was called the rule of 40 score. 
And in that example, we had a rule of 40 school of 40. If instead you were growing at 100% but losing 200%, your rule of 40 score would be negative 100, right? 100 minus 200. I think it's a good rule in general. I don't think it's religion. And, and by the way, it gets mathematically interesting when people do correlations of valuation to rule of 40 score. So, so the most interesting chart you can show me is rule of 40 score on the x-axis by valuation multiple on the y-axis. And People have done that, and in general, rule of 40 has maybe 10% more predictive power than just simply growth, because that's the idea. If I could just do growth versus multiple, for the rule of 40 to be really meaningful, it should have more predictive power than simply growth. And it does. The good news is it does. The answer is it's not dramatically more. I don't know if you do 10% as dramatic, but the, the last time I looked at it, I said it has incremental predictive power. The other thing you have to remember about Rule of 40, which is a problem for private SaaS companies, is all the benchmarks are public. So you have a huge case of kind of missampling or sample bias. So you're sampling a bunch of companies that in this day and age got to be $100 million, got to go public, right? have raised on average last year $300 million, were 18 years old on average last year, the IPO class is something like that. Uh, maybe it's 15 years old, but they're, they're 15 years old, they raised $300 million, they're over $100 million in ARR, and then you're comparing your $8 million SaaS company to that. So that I think is misleading. I think the bigger you get, if you're 50, 70, 80, 100 million in ARR, then I think you should start thinking about rule of 40. If you're a $4 million company trying to make next year's operating plan, I think the rule of 40 is probably not applicable. Last question, what resources would you recommend to people who would like to learn more about SaaS metrics? So I think good metrics sites are, let me, let me just see one, Kelblog, K-E-L-L-B-L-O-G. I think David Skok is another, I can't remember the name of his blog, but the last name is S-K-O-K. Uh, he's a great metrics blogger. I think some of the PE firms, I think it's OpenView, does a nice job of blogging about SaaS metrics. There's an annual study done by KeyBank, which is probably, if there was only one thing you could look at, that's what I would look at because it provides all the benchmark data along with the definitions of how they calculated it. But the KeyBank, formerly known as the Pacific Crest, so Pacific Crest was a uh, boutique investment banker that got bought by uh, KeyBank. That study itself is probably the single thing I would look at every year. If you're an operator and you want more detailed SaaS metrics, like how much do people spend on marketing demand generation versus marketing people versus marketing programs, right? None of that stuff we've talked about, right? We've talked about not even marketing by itself, but marketing aggregated with sales, right? Where we've talked at a very coarse level of granularity. Uh, there's a company called OpEx Engine that sells benchmark data at a very granular level. So if you're, for example, a financial planning professional and you're trying to get data, you know, for SaaS companies between 10 and 30 million, how much are they spending on marketing headcount versus marketing lead gen? You can get that from OpEx Engine. Well, obviously the Bessemer. I mean, we, we can't not speak of the Bessemer. Um, they, they've rechristened it a couple times, so I don't know what it's called anymore. But if you go to Bessemer's website and look at SaaS best practices or uh, Bessemer's website for SaaS key metrics. I mean, Bessemer, as far as I know, are like the first guys to really popularize the CAC ratio. And they actually, I think, did it wrong the first time, to be fair. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the good news about them is they have changed over time how they calculate things to, to keep up. There's another guy named Rory O'Driscoll at Scale who came up with something called the magic number, which is kind of the inverse of the CAC ratio. He does some content on this. The other guy I would look at is Tomas Tungas at Redpoint. He's more, I'd say, data-oriented than metrics-oriented, but still very good blogger for all things quantitative about SaaS. Thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure speaking with you.